Welcome, everybody, to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. My name is Steve Guntley, and I can stand anything but pain. My guest today has promised to give me all eight eighths, so I'm excited to see what that means. Uh, please say hello, everybody, in your homes to your podcast machines, I guess, to Molly Gratton. Hi, Molly. Hello. Thank you Hi, for having how me. Are you? I'm great. I'm I'm delighted to have you here. So, Zamali, so you and I have never met before now. It sounds like I'm queuing up a magic trick. I promise I'm not. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to ask you to pick a card. But, yeah, we, we, have, we have never met before. Um, and I have never seen the movie that we're talking about today before. And uh, so it's lots of new experiences I'm very excited about. The movie we're talking about is The Bandwagon from 1953, directed by Vincente Minnelli. Molly, uh, why, why did you want to talk about this movie in particular? What's your connection to this film? Uh, this is a movie that, uh, unlike you, I this is probably the tenth time I've seen it. This is one of my yes. favorite movies, um, dating back to when I was in high school and watched all musicals, but especially the MGM musicals. So okay. I am a big fan of this one. Um, I am a big fan of Oscar Levant, who I am so delighted that you quoted in the intro. So looking forward to talking a little more about him, maybe. Yeah, I, I'd never heard of him before watching this movie, and now I'm reading up on it. I was like, wow, he's kind of like a cranky bastard. I'm excited. Right, right. <laughs> he's, he's, wow, it sounds very interesting. Um, yeah, so like we said, the movie we're talking about is The Bandwagon. It was released August 7th, 1953. It was directed by Vincente Minnelli, and it stars Fred Astaire, Sid Charisse, Oscar Levant, Nanette Fabre, and Jack Buchanan. Yeah, this is my very first time seeing this movie, and I mean, I'm going to date the, the the recording a little bit. We're, we're uh, the day before election right now as we're recording this. And man, did I ever need just this blast of pure joy and happiness that this movie offers. It's, I mean, I feel like you can't really talk about this movie without bringing up Singing in the Rain in the same breath, because I think they both occupy a very similar space. I also feel like a double feature of this movie and Singing in the Rain would cure depression internationally and uh, throughout time. I think you just need to do that, because um, it's it's just such a pure happy like lighter than air there's like really not a whole lot going on below the surface of this one but what's on the surface is glorious and just such a welcome breath of fresh air uh yeah i'm, I'm a fan I'm, I'm instantly a convert to this movie um let's talk a little bit about our director here because he's got a very interesting career vincente manelli He's one of those filmmakers that I feel like uh, you you talk about his movies and his personal life in the same breath because he had kind of a controversial or he, he was like tabloid fodder for years and years because of uh, at least one very high profile <laughs> marriage that he was in. Uh, so Minnelli grew up in a musical family. He was born in 1903 in Chicago and his father was a composer for his own traveling review. Uh, and Vincente cut his teeth in the Chicago theater scene as a production designer before eventually moving up to director. He had a real knack for it. He moved out to Broadway in the 30s, where he became one of the biggest Broadway directors of big, splashy musicals. Uh, he had a real knack for that. His first film as a director in Hollywood was a pretty daring one. He directed the movie Cabin in the Sky, which starred Lena Horne and an all-black cast. And I believe this is the first Hollywood film to have an all African-American cast in it. Uh, it was one of those movies that the studio didn't want to make. They were convinced that people weren't going to see it, but it wound up being a pretty decent sized hit and made a household name out of Lena Horne. And uh, it's, it's a great movie. It's worth watching too. Uh, he followed up that film uh, in 1944 with the film Meet Me in St. Louis. Again, uh, another classic musical of the... Was this an MGM one? I don't remember. Yes, and the I one that was. You brought him and Judy Garland together for that tabloid the, marriage. That is the big thing. So uh, he was 40 years old at the time. She was 20, I believe, and uh, they fell in love on the set of that movie. And they would be married from 1945 to 1951, and by all accounts, it was... An extremely tumultuous, troubled marriage for a lot of reasons. I think uh, poor Judy Garland was in the depths of her depression and her uh, barbiturate addiction at this time. There were fights. There were suicide attempts. It, it got all very ugly. There's also a great deal of speculation about Minnelli possibly being uh, a gay man or at least a bisexual man. Um, Never confirmed or denied, but certainly those rumors <laughs> persist. They've, 
they persisted. Uh, allegedly, you know, when he was living in New York, he was like openly gay, like and being with men. And then when he moved to Hollywood, he kind of toned it down. I'm not sure what exactly happened there. We can only speculate. Either way, their marriage was very tumultuous, but it did result in the birth of their daughter, Liza Minnelli, which makes this uh, one of the only like mother, father, and daughter trios that all have an Oscar, which is an interesting distinction. I can't think of another, right? Because the Barrymores were another big family, but I don't think Drew Barrymore does not have her Oscar yet. Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right. I I think it might be the only time. Yeah, all three Oscar winners, and obviously Liza Minnelli, huge deal. Um, yeah, and she, she uh, Liza Minnelli was on set a lot during the making of this movie as a very young child, like just kind of following her father around and watching Fred Astaire dance, and there are worse ways to spend your childhood, I think. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, Minnelli and Garland, their, their time together, it was, it was very heavily covered by the tabloids during this time, um, and it's still kind of a, uh, fact, uh, a matter of fascination for a lot of people. Um, in 1952, Minnelli directed his biggest hit yet, which was the film An American in Paris, starring Gene Kelly. That went on to win Best Picture, and he would win Best Picture again for the movie Gigi in 1958. And all told, he's made about 37 movies. He made about a movie a year for most of his life. It kind of slowed down a little bit towards the end. Uh, he passed away in 1986 at the age of 83. His last film was actually a vehicle for his daughter, called A Matter of Time, and uh, he disowned that one. He, he had, <laughs> it's the only movie in his career that he has disowned, so uh, I feel sad for Liza there. Um, so a little bit of, how much do you know about the production behind this movie? I'm sure you've seen this You've seen this many times. You know yes, more than yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, from what I understand, it was a really troubled production behind the scenes, which is um, amazing. That's something so light and joyous and beautiful was the end result. Um, I believe that this is the point where um, Garland and Minnelli were divorcing. So that was yeah. happening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on set, um, Fred Astaire's wife was terminally ill and uh, she would die within the year. Um, uh, Jack Buchanan, the second male lead playing Jeffrey Cordova, the director producer, um, was undergoing major surgery and um, often uh, came to the set with his face shot up full of Novocaine. So sometimes yeah. his face was paralyzed. And Oscar Levant, who was just a big mess the whole time. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So <laughs> I, I'll, I might rely on you to talk a little bit more about Oscar Levant. Uh, all I really know about him is that he... He worked with uh, Arthur Freed, the producer, quite a bit. They were like close friends, and he kind of considered him like his good luck charm. And so he kind of put him in all these movies, even though, like, I'm just going to go out and say that I don't think he really uh, rises to the level of everyone else in this movie. Like, he's not a dancer. He's not a singer. He's he's uh, He's got an interesting kind of persona. But yeah, so what? What's the deal with Oscar Levant? <laughs> what's the deal with Oscar Levant? What's the deal? Yeah, what's the deal with Oscar Levant? <laughs> That's my Seinfeld, apparently, which sounds like a dying old man. <laughs> what is the deal? I think you nailed it. He was all persona. <laughs> um, yeah. He had a very interesting life. Uh, he was sort of a marginal member of the Algonquin Roundtable in New York in the 1920s. Uh, composer, um, sort of made his reputation by being George Gershwin's best friend and interpreter of uh, many of his works. Um, by the 1950s, he was most famous um, as a public personality. He um, appeared on many radio shows in the 1940s, um, all of these character roles in films for both Arthur Freed um, at MGM and a few other studios. Um, he was a TV pioneer, actually, if you can imagine that personality on TV. Um, he was a regular guest on the original Tonight Show, and he also hosted his own TV show on local um, Los Angeles television. And um, in all of these movies, he sort of plays himself, which is one of those things in the 50s that is so interesting. You think about it as being such a sort of uptight, repressed time for things mm-hmm. like uh, mental illness and drug abuse. And he was quite open about both of those things. Um, I think the best quote I read um, in connection with the bandwagon, that his appearance on the set every day was a miracle of pharmaceuticals. <laughs> I read that. Yeah, I think Roger Ebert uh, uh, captured that in his essay, which yes. is like a great line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I was curious about who he was because like, and I'm, I'm going to go out on a very far limb. I'm going to make a claim that is unsubstantiated in any way, shape or form. But I feel like the Martins in this movie are loosely the influence for Fred and Wilma Flintstone. I'm going to say that. I'm gonna say, I know people say, yeah, 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 the Honeymooners. This came up before the Honeymooners I checked. Uh, I'm going to say it's this. Yeah, I would say we got it. Yeah, visually, you're right on the mark. Um, you got like kind of a schlubby guy with a mug with like a beautiful redhead and like they, they don't seem that it makes sense, but they do make sense. Yeah, it's yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it right there. Yeah, he, he was an interesting figure. And like apparently, yeah, he and Nanette Fabre in particular, who plays his wife in this, uh, did not get along. Yes. Uh, and she had her own troubles, like during the production of Louisiana Hayride, she fell through one of the boxes, gashed open her leg and that that needed stitches. And then the very next day she had to shoot the triplet scene where she's on her knees in this little, very uncomfortable rig. So everybody was hopped up on painkillers during that entire <laughs> thing, which I wonder what that day was like. It's like, you're just stoned out of your mind. You're dressed like a baby. You're dancing around. You're dancing on these weird still things. Yeah. And Liza I- Minnelli's running around, pulling on people's pigtails <laughs> or something. I don't know. Like that's a weird day. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think, again, you can draw comparisons to Singing in the Rain, another lighter-than-air kind of concoction that had a troubled backstage kind of situation, you know? Like, people didn't really get along. And in both cases, the male lead, in this case Fred Astaire, in that case Gene Kelly, both, um, by all accounts, you know, nice guys, decent human men, but they were also obsessive perfectionists who would kind of drive people to the brink of insanity with the number of rehearsals that they would require. And uh, they're, they're, you know, they both have their own like insecurities and their own issues about a lot of things. So yeah, it was troubled and it, it took a lot of hard work to get through. It. And that's something that uh, Roger Ebert pointed out in his great movies essay. It's, it wants to remind you that theater or entertainment or anything like that is work. It's, it's got blood equity. It's or sweat equity. It's, it's your, you're putting in all this time and all this effort just to make people's life a little bit better. And so it's, it's nice to see that like played out on screen, even though like everything we have here seems almost averse to conflict. Like I wrote down the very final line of the entire show is during a a reprise of uh, that's entertainment where they say uh, no death, like the end of Macbeth, no ordeal, (laughs) like the end of Camille. That's they're they're commenting on the movie that they just shot. It's like, yeah, there's no death, there's no ordeal, like there's no bad guy in this movie. There's no conflict that isn't like neatly and quickly resolved before like the end point. So it, it's, I think it's a per. I, I wish we were releasing this before the election, just because I feel like this is a perfect movie to just kind of sink into for a little bit and just uh, and just disappear for a while. I don't know. It's got a it's got a kind of magic to it that I really appreciated. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right on the money that this was the perfect movie to be watching this weekend, that just nothing else was going to make me feel better. <laughs> nothing else is going to make you feel better, no, but, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a note that I made, it, um, thinking about it, watching it this time, that it is both the most cynical take on showbiz and showbiz people and the most romanticized take on the theater yeah. and on musical comedy. Um, a lot of it... It's all about ego and pretentiousness and gossip and squabbling. But what happens at the end? They come together in the service of the show. They do. It's great. It's great. And even like them having little egomaniacal bursts, like it's not even it's played off as so charming. And it could just be the Fred Astaire is just inherently incredibly charming. But like the the issue he was having in the film, the issue his character Tony was having in the film that he might be too short or that Sid Charisse might be too tall uh, was an issue that he actually had as well when they were making the movie. And he was also insecure about the fact that he was a tap dancer and she was a ballet dancer, you know, and they were coming from kind of different worlds and how would they be able to dance together? Um, which, of course, like, that's that's this... Initially, that's the conflict of this movie to the degree that this has a conflict the two characters meet. They don't really get along. They're from different worlds. How will they ever be able to dance together? And then we melt into it with that beautiful dancing in the dark sequence where they just kind of wordlessly fall into this rhythm in this empty park. And there's no words at all. And then when they get in the carriage at the end, again, you're expecting some quip or something. And they both just like lie back, almost like 
a post-coital moment. Like yeah, very, yeah. Like very satisfied with themselves and they just kind of let themselves be carried away. It's, it's a memorable, amazing sequence for a reason. Like uh, you really get to see how both of their gifts, their considerable gifts are being uh, used in tandem with each other. It's really just a beautiful moment. Um, and the choreography I, is beautiful oh. because it's not quite the ballroom of Fred and Ginger, and it's not the no. pure ballet that we have seen Sid Charisse performing earlier in the film. So right. it's just this this hybrid where they, they come together, and it works. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I was amazed to look in the credits and see that uh, Fred Astaire was 54 years old when he was <laughs> making this movie. I'm sitting here, I'm 36. I've been laid up all week with a back injury and I'm watching this man like jump around like 20 years my senior. I'm like, okay, all right, I'm just giving up. I, I quit. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, we're we're going to talk about Fred Astaire in more detail when we get to the Top Hat episode because I feel like the context you really want with Fred Astaire is Astaire and Rogers. Like I think that duo is so singularly iconic. He's made some great movies on his own, case in point, but I feel like... Uh, that's that's where I really want to dig into his history. The important thing to know about Fred Astaire here is that he wasn't in quite as dire a position as Tony Hunter is, like where nobody will hire him. Like, I think at this point in 1953, he was seen as kind of passe. He, he was he was a relic of the old studio system, and he there was stuff coming out. Like, I think uh, West Side Story was on Broadway at this point, which was kind of the big new exciting thing in theater. It's like combining like jazz and ballet and interpretive dance and all this stuff. And he's just kind of, his style is kind of being seen as corny. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, I was actually, I, I was curious about that. And I looking at his filmography and I, he, between 1952 and 1953, he had uh, four movies out Yeah, and two of them were really big hits and two of them were not, but that's not, that's not a bad track record. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's not, you know, he he wasn't like washed up or anything, but I would say his career was kind of stagnating because he'd been doing the same thing over and over again. And he was making noise about retiring. You know, he's done that a couple times throughout his life. He was going to say, I'm retiring. They draw him out. I'm retiring. Draw him out. This was the movie that kind of convinced him to stick it out for a little while longer. And then I think he sat out most of the 60s and then came back for was it Towering Inferno that he came back? I think so. Yeah, he got an so. Oscar nomination for Towering Inferno, crazily enough. Um, yeah, so he was he was kind of at that point in his career. So Tony Hunter uh, isn't a far cry from where he is at this point, and there was kind of a sense that people were over him, and that's why you get the opening shot of this movie is just a static shot of the Top Hat and Kane, <laughs> which are his trademarks from the movie Top Hat. Like... And they're trying to auction it off for a modest sum of $5 and still nobody will buy it. That tells us exactly what kind of level he's at. And then all the people, the guys talking about him on the train, which is a great moment, you know. So he's he's kind of out on his own. I, I wanted your thoughts a little bit. I think the one thing about this movie that doesn't super pop for me is the music. Like, I feel like the songs aren't terribly memorable in general well i don't know what do you think right right and um i would say with the exception of that's entertainment um yeah most of these songs are not well known i mean maybe dancing in the dark but um i would be hard pressed to call any of them standards and even it's... that's entertainment is so tied into that number and into later the the mgm musical documentaries that's entertainment. right that that's that's what I knew them from. For those who haven't seen those, that's entertainment. There were three of those. And basically they're just kind of like they're almost like compilation videos, right? Yeah. If I remember I, I think my grandparents had some. I watched them. They're just like compilation videos of old MGM musicals. Um and so yeah, and they're all called That's Entertainment. All of the songs in this movie existed before this movie. That's kind of the MGM tradition of the time, is just you're gonna recycle old Broadway hits and put it in a new context. Again, singing in the yeah, rain. I'm going to keep say, harping on that. The same way singing in the rain. <laughs> they did the same thing. Exactly. The music here was all done by, uh, who were, uh, Howard Dietz and Arthur Schwartz. Um, and this is based on a 1931 Broadway review that did not have a plot. It was basically just like what we get in the last act of this movie, which is just a string of unrelated musical numbers. 
Uh, so the the script itself was written by uh, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who uh, they they actually also served as the basis of the Martins, even though they weren't romantically engaged in any way. Um, and they got an Oscar nomination for the script, as well they should, because it's one of those great, sparkling, witty 50s <laughs> scripts that just kind of snap along, you know. And And again, there's really not much of a plot here. The plot, basically, that we have is that uh, Tony Hunter is a movie star, but he's kind of washed up at this point. He uh, gets an offer from some old friends to be in a Broadway review. He loves the idea. It sounds great. Then they bring in this pretentious uh, theater director played by Jack Buchanan, who wants to turn it into a modern day interpretation of Faust with a serious balletic dancer at the lead played by Sid Charisse. And he doesn't want any part of that because he's just a, a good old fashioned song and dance man. Got kind of a, a reverse Sullivan's Travels uh, ideal going on where he just wants to entertain people and be as light and fun as possible. I think at one point he says, like, I know what I'm good at and this ain't it. And Cordova kind of pushes him to get out of his comfort zone and to try something new. I do want to highlight Jack Buchanan a little bit because I feel like that's the performance that stole the movie uh, the entire time. Like, I was not familiar with this actor beforehand. And every time he popped on screen, I'm like, all right, I have I have seen this pompous theater director <laughs> type done before. I've seen it done before, before this, after this. But there is a particular joy that he brings to this part. And it, I think the fact that he's like at his core, a good and decent person makes just, it yes. so much more. Yeah, yeah. Just, just it, a, a little delusional. He's um, delusional. Yeah, he's full of himself, but he's not a bad guy and he's not yeah. unreasonable at all. And he's been successful with doing what he's doing. So yeah. some of that delusion is a little, maybe a little earned. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I, from what I understand, based on both Jose Ferrer and Orson Welles, uh, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> I see a lot of Orson Welles in, um, in Jeffrey Cordova. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, from, uh, from our recent episode on Chimes at Midnight, we learned that Welles could be a bit more of a, a bit, a little less good natured about his uh, 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 theatrical whims here than Cordova <laughs> is. But we first meet him doing a production of Oedipus Rex that's produced by him, directed by him, starring him, and written by him. Like he's got his name on the poster five times, <laughs> which is a very funny touch. But again, I, I love that he is a nice guy in the end. Like you think it's going to go kind of one direction, and you think he's just going to be the big bad that they have to topple at the end of the show. And that's not the case at all. When they do decide that the show that he's created doesn't work. It's like nothing to convince him to switch over. He's just like, he's so yeah. good naturedly. He's like, if you think it'll work, I'm in. And then he shows up and he dresses like a baby and he does <laughs> soft shoe. And he, he really, he just goes for it. And uh, because he meant what he said earlier when he said, it doesn't matter if you're doing Shakespeare or if you're doing a musical, it's all theater, you know? And he, he genuinely loves theater. It just it's just a delightful character. I don't know. I really had fun watching him throughout the entire film. Yes, definitely. Again, with that the romantic heart of the movie where the most important thing is the show must go on. Yes, absolutely. We also need to talk about Sid Charisse. Uh, <laughs> I have heard her described as having the greatest legs in human history, which yeah, yeah. <laughs> up, up, up there. I mean, you know, I haven't I haven't seen Napoleon's legs, but I bet, you know, I bet she could beat him. Uh, yeah, what she is just uh, amazing to watch. I mean, she's a classically trained ballet dancer. Uh, she was, I think, 22 or 23 in this movie and just kind of at the peak of her powers. And uh, it's it's magnetic watching her dance. It's just absolutely magnetic. Her acting's a little limited. Her singing had to be dubbed over. But watching her move and just watching her and Astaire partner up and dance is just it's it's transfixing you know it's one of these yes. things you can kind of disappear into um yeah 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 she was um part of Minnelli's sort of regular stock company and i think um especially when you see her in, in movies with other directors you realize that Minnelli was really able to sort of work with her limitations as an actress yeah. and um her roles are quite even... interesting that's not even a knock on her. Like, I, I don't think everybody needs to be a quadruple threat <laughs> or or that you need to even necessarily be a great actor to be a great film presence, you know? And I think she is a great charismatic film presence. 
even if her range is a little limited. You know, it's similar to Marilyn Monroe. You know, Marilyn Monroe, not the greatest actress in the world, but she commanded the screen in a certain way that I think Sid Charisse does as well. Pardon me. So I like that this movie exists in the real world compared to kind of the fictional Hollywood of singing in the rain because, and we know it's in the real world because we get a random Ava Gardner cameo. <laughs> I, a really funny bit where like uh, he thinks the presser is, is waiting for him at the train station and they're talking to him. They're genial. And then uh, Ava Gardner pops out of the next train and just commands attention. And she's very gracious and friendly, but you know, that, that kind of, let us know where we are as far as like the reality of the world. We don't need to worry about like fake movie stars or anything like that. Yeah. And this movie is similarly in love with the idea of movie stars in Hollywood that singing in the rain is like, I think the most unrealistic part of the movie was the two middle-aged men sitting around talking about those movie stars that they love in the train. (laughs) Like even in 1953, I don't know if this is a conversation that would happen between two middle-aged men, but you know, I I hope I'm wrong about that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that'd be cool either way. Uh, I love meeting the the Martins. Like right away, you see an immediate like friendly, goofy relationship between these three characters. Like like there's genuine love with all of them, and it's like it's it's just kind of settling into their friendship, and uh, it's nice to see all that play out. Um, early on in the movie, we get. So this th- this movie is kind of defined by two big um, balletic dance numbers. There's the Dancing in the Dark one that we talked about, and there's the Girl Hunt Ballet, which I'll want to talk about later. I think I agree with Roger Ebert in his assessment that uh, my favorite bit is the uh, dance sequence in the Penny Arcade yes. uh, with the uh, with the shoe shine. And this is this is a bad song. I'm gonna say it. this is a bad song. It's like it's really <laughs> dumb. It's really dated. It's just all about like there's a good portion where the bridge is just him going like, I got shiny shoes, shiny shoes, I got shiny shoes, shiny shoes, shiny shoes. It's like, he sounds like a a toddler that someone gave a bunch of Halloween candy, like running around like crazy. It's not a great song, but this sequence is endlessly innovative. And I love from the moment he enters this penny arcade, it's being set up. So he goes to the hot dog guy. He's given a hot dog. The camera is moving and following him the entire time. It's almost like a Goodfellas like steady cam shot. Like he's going from machine to machine. <laughs> we're demonstrating how each machine works or doesn't work. Uh, we're demonstrating like the different people that are around this area. And then finally he trips on the man giving shoe shines and uh, enters into this whole dance number. It's it's not only like it's a great showcase for Astaire's abilities, but it's also he just kind of he lets the shoe shine take over. He, he this so the story behind this guy, his name uh, was uh, oh I have it right here. It was Leroy Daniels, Leroy Daniels, and he was an actual shoe shiner in New York who would do this kind of number. He would he would kind of shine people's shoes, but he would also dance and kind of like make a performance out of it. Vincente Minnelli saw him in New York and flew him out to Hollywood to do this movie with Fred Astaire. And this guy off the street, literally a guy off the street, is holding his own with the best dancer that ever appeared on film. And it's an amazing sequence. It's so innovative. I think that that may be my favorite sequence in the entire movie. And I love how... um, even if you look sort of, if you could look away from Leroy Daniels and Fred Astaire, everything that's going on in the background in that scene, um, Minnelli was really good at picking his extras and this whole seedy, brightly colored Times Square Petty Arcade is full of weirdos. And I love it's it. Great. <laughs> it's so great. And I mean, just thinking about the elegance of the long, like follow shot before that, now it kind of incorporates into the choreography. He's going back to each of these machines that like kind of rejected him the first time or that he didn't, he didn't know how to work with them the first time. And now that he's dancing and singing and he has a shoe shine and he's like feeling good about himself, all of a sudden it's just all falling together. There's that big like mystery box. Yes. I looked into these. These are basically just kind of like you pump, you're, you're supposed to turn the knobs or like press the buttons in a certain order to make it open up. It's like a puzzle box. And uh, basically the trick is you just have to keep pumping quarters into it until you figure out the sequence. And then the first time he tries it, nothing, nothing happens. The second time when he's dancing, he just like bop, 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 twist, 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 smack, smack. And then 
boom, and it opens up. And the one thing I was waiting for, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've seen this more times than I have, uh, the lady in the little gypsy tarot booth, is that's a real woman, right? That's not a machine in there. I think so. There. I and think so. I kept, exp- I kept waiting for her to pop out. Yes, I kept and start waiting dancing. For her to- <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like that was intended and then it didn't happen. But it also establishes in this scene that there is some magic going on, that this isn't just a straight up realistic movie because he's dancing around here. He's got like superpowers. He like force pushes those cans over. Like he's, he's doing all these amazing little like magical tricks here that, that are uh, so far beyond anything else that we see in the movie. Like he doesn't dip back into this magical thing again. Like you would think if they were going to really ride that, like, Maybe he and Sid Charisse, while they're dancing in the dark, they could be floating above the <laughs> ground or something like that. They don't lean into it. This is kind of the only moment of magical realism. And it's just it's just exuberant and so much fun. And then, like, even still, the camera is moving the entire time. It's going back and forth. It's watching their movements. It's tracking everything that happens. I just, I think that that was the moment I was like, I'm so on board with this movie. <laughs> like, whatever else that happens, this movie gave me this scene, and I love it. And it's a very Fred Astaire moment. I feel like in yeah. a lot of his later movies, he has some gimmick that he's able to work in there. And it doesn't feel like a gimmick. It feels like magic. I mean, yeah. it's really, it really works. So have you done like much uh, uh, theater or anything in your personal life? Or, or are you a big theater person? Um, not in many years. Okay. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> a little bit in high school. So that's that's my my dorky thing is that I do a lot of local theater and stuff like that. And this the the bits where they're actually rehearsing the show felt very lived in and authentic to me. Yes. Like there's the sniping and there's like the rush to get everything done. And like the little moment that made me like real like, oh, yeah, yeah, they get it. It's just like uh, uh, Fred and Sid uh, like rehearsing in the lobby. Like there's a piano out there and they're just like the two of them out in the lobby. That's a hundred percent something we've done. That's, that's like, okay, we need to build the set. You guys go on to the <laughs> lobby and like practice this tap dance on like Berber carpet for a while and see how that sounds, you know? So that it just felt very lived in and observational and made me uh, uh, whimsical for the days that I could, <laughs> you know, be outside and around people. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I don't know, just the, the little moments of them like laughing in uh, uh, they, they've been rehearsing so long that they're so exhausted that they just start kind of like laughing to themselves and doing time steps, you know, and just kind of like giving up yeah. on everything. I don't know. We've all kind of reached that point doing theater in the past. And it's, uh, yeah, again, very lived in, very observational. Or the scene um, when um, the other one I like that's a piece like that is when everyone is trying to direct him in this line and change the line and rewrite the line. Yeah. And he comes back and it's just like his head totally explodes and he can't yeah. do it. <laughs> yep, yep. Every time it's like, because yeah, you have to check it with like 10 different people to make sure to work. You can't just change a line. You have to consult the choreographer. You have to consult blah, blah, blah. Um, I think the, the choreographer uh, is actually the closest thing we get to a villain in this movie. And even he is not portrayed yeah. as a villain. Yeah. He's just kind of like, he's, he's a uh, uh, Sid Cerise's spouse and he's kind of trying to protect her career and he doesn't want her doing kind of this goofy review when she's like a serious balletic dancer, uh, which is uh, an echo of something that happened in real life. Sid Cerise was married to a, choreographer named tony martin similar to tony hunter oh no she was married to a choreographer and she left him for someone named tony martin ah. so there's kind of like a parallel there and i'm not <laughs> sure if they were commenting on that directly i don't know if that had happened yet but it happened with her eventually but yeah um, even he is not like a terrible yeah. person or i mean or, he know. he's the obstacle between uh gabby and and tony getting together but he's not a bad guy no. and even he admits you know he is pretty quick to admit his limitations and uh drop out of the show for the good of the show i was kind of hoping that gabby and tony would not get together in the end i was (laughs) hoping it was going to be one of those i was hoping it was going to be like these are two people who respect each other and love each other so greatly you know because there is also a 30-year age gap here which is little gross so i wasn't really rooting for him to to get the girl in the end and i honestly didn't feel like they were setting that up until kind of close to the end yeah like the romantic element of this 
felt a little shoehorned in just because like, yes, you have the, the, the dancing in the dark sequence again, it's got a sensuality to it, you know, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like two people falling in love. It feels like people, two people finding their equal, you know, yeah. in a way, in a way that's much more compelling than I think a romantic relationship would. I don't know. Um, I think, so after, after a little bit, they try out their Faustian play. It's a big disaster. There's an amazing, like very ornate physical comedy bit where the set goes wrong. <laughs> And it, like the set is on a bunch of risers that has to like kind of lift up different elements and like move it around. And there's all these explosives going on and everything like that. And everything starts to go wrong at the same time in a really slow burn kind of way. And we've got a, we're, we're pulling back at a wide shot. So we're seeing the entire thing as the audience would watching this set malfunction. It must have been very complicated just to set up this thing that looks like it's going wrong. Uh, and it's incredibly well executed. Yes. With, uh, with Jeffrey still trying to direct the whole thing as everything is going wrong and he is being lifted out of the set. He's he's trying his damnedest. Uh, Now Eber was pointing out in his essay that he says this movie feels a lot more melancholy than singing in the rain. And I don't know that I agree with that. I think we do get the moment where everybody post the, the, the show opens it flops really bad. It's a big embarrassment for everybody. Uh, but instead of kind of sitting around wallowing in it, they're all having kind of this raucous cast party where they're they're drinking beer, they're singing songs about how much they <laughs> like beer, and uh, you know, it turns German weirdly in the middle of it. And uh, and it, it isn't until after they've kind of settled down where there's like this long moment of quiet where everyone's kind of like, well, shit, what do I do now? Like, uh, and then they kind of refocus their efforts and they're going to make. And this is where I got confused because it sounds like they wanted to make the show that the Martins had originally wrote, which was this hey. story about a uh, a children's book writer who had moonlights as like a crime detective writer. And that's how he makes his money. And the show that they put on, which is ultimately called The Bandwagon, and it's like a good hour and a half into the movie before you even see that title. <laughs> um, they... Uh, they do kind of like an old fashioned review. And I just wasn't clear if they were still going with the theme uh, of the original thing, because they bring back the, the crime writer for a very notable part. Right. They also have things like Louisiana hayride, which is a, a bad song (laughs) and like B has nothing to do with anything. Like, I I feel like I would have cut that. scene. I don't want to like cut Nanette Fabre because I think she's really charming and fun. And she does a lot of fun with that part. But, uh, that's, yeah. that's kind of like a bad song, right? Like it, it is very corny. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the things that I sort of like to do with movies about putting on shows that often just string together a bunch of musical numbers. It's like, okay, is there really a through plot here? And yeah. it's like for this one, it's well, sort of. I mean, certainly we have the uh, the crime writer aspect at at the end. Uh, it's like, well, we have the. Uh, his day job is, as the Martins originally presented, is uh, writing children's books. So it's like, okay, so maybe that's what the the uh, the triplets are. But um, oh god, I have a whole other suite of thoughts about the triplets. <laughs> in. Okay, but yeah, continue. But, yeah, even I can't figure out where Louisiana Hayride fits into all of that. Yeah, yeah. So, something, uh, you know, yeah, we like I said, we've just met, and so you 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 wouldn't uh, know this about me uh, inherently. But I hate it when babies talk like humans or like adults or when adults talk like babies. I think in both cases, it just it makes my skin crawl like those old commercials of like the the stock trader baby like talking, like make me sick to my stomach. Uh, so this triplet sequence where we have Fred Astaire and Annette Fabray and Jack Buchanan dressed like babies in high chairs with short little legs. And they're singing about how much they hate each other and wants to kill people. Yeah, uh, that's nightmare fuel. <laughs> It is horrifying that they would do that. Like, and I'm watching this. I'm like, why does this need to be here? And this is, this is also where I was bumping up on the songs. Like lyrically, these songs are so strange. They're kind of like stream of consciousness. Like they, they get to a rhyme scheme, but only in a very circuitous way. It's like, uh, uh, what are they saying? It's like, uh, and I hate them very much, very much. I wish I had a gun so I could kill them both. It's like, what, what are we doing here? And the fact that this is like a technically extremely difficult, 
uh, dance sequence too is all the stranger. Like, okay, so they get up out of these high chairs, but they're still like toddler height because they're wearing these little fake legs underneath the dress that are attached to the knees. So basically these three people have to be, two of which are in their 50s, have to be dancing on their knees doing these little things. And uh, yeah, two in their 50s and the third gashed her leg open, as we already <laughs> mentioned. So all of them are stoned. They're dr- they're drugged up. They're trying to dance with these tiny little legs dressed in bonnets. It's very surreal. Uh, and I don't know, like I, 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 I wasn't sure about that scene necessarily. <laughs> it was funny to watch and it was unusual, but uh, I don't know that it needed to be here. Well, it's one of those, like, if this is supposed to be the greatest hits of Dietz and Schwartz, it's like, when, when was this triplet song? <laughs> like, <part> yeah. <laughs> yeah, when was this, when was this popular? What was the context What, what was of the this? original context? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what? Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what was going on there. But we do get it all paid off with the genuinely amazing uh, Girl Hunt Ballet, which is like this long... Uh, kind of closing sequence and Minnelli likes to do this because he did this in American and Paris as well. Like there's a big ballet sequence kind of ending the movie and culminating all the different themes. But basically this is a ballet sequence inspired by the pulp novels of like Mickey Spillane and uh, Raymond Chandler and guys like that about a detective, a hard-boiled detective, which uh, Fred Astaire, not the hard-boiled detective type, but uh, it works. He looks good. It, it, uh, It suits him well. And, they come up with this really ornate dance sequence where they kind of work through this entire crime plot where this like blonde and this brunette and centuries is playing two different roles and bouncing back and forth. And there's like ballet dancers in full, like uh, uh, gangster suits doing backflips and like shooting cap gun pistols at each other. And like the subway lighting flickering over them while they're dancing really amazing stuff. I don't know. I really yeah, love that entire sequence. One of those numbers set on a Broadway stage that could not possibly exist on a br- real Broadway stage. Oh, no way. No <laughs> way. Yeah. It's so required. It's so like those quick changes alone would be borderline impossible. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's gorgeous. And apparently the sequence was one of the big influences on Michael Jackson when he made the smooth criminal video. Oh, so yeah. if you've ever seen uh Michael Jackson uh, sliding around in a gangster suit. It's because of this movie. Uh, yeah, and everything kind of culminates uh, with a successful show, and we get uh, uh, the, you know, Fred Astaire gets the girl in the end, even though that, that wasn't necessarily <laughs> something it was building to. But that's cool. It's happy. I mean, it's Fred uh, Astaire. <laughs> it's Fred Astaire. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a charming dude and uh, extremely well-dressed. Um and then, yeah, they sing a reprise of That's Entertainment. Like, and like I said, they kind of sum up the themes of the movie. They just say, we, we're not here to uh, bum you out or, or make you worry too much. I mean, uh, this is just light, effervescent entertainment. But it's like, I don't know. Like, I don't want it to, I don't want to feel like I'm diminishing it. Like, I know this is the great movies that we're talking about. And I think this deserves a spot in here. I think there's room for this and for Singing in the Rain. Um, because, you know, maybe they, I think they if nothing else, they illustrate the differences. If you take a similar milieu for both of these movies and then cast Fred Astaire in one and Gene Kelly in the other, <laughs> you get a really excellent uh, uh, counterpoint of their two styles. Yes. You know, like Astaire is extremely, he's, he's almost frail. Like he's a, he's a smaller guy, but he's extremely elegant and graceful. Whereas Kelly is taller. He's more athletic. He's the type who's like going to throw you around and like do gigantic, like fancy jumps and stuff like that. So it's very interesting to see these two contrasting styles with similar motifs. I thought. Yeah. 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 Um, I feel like I had something else to say about Fred Astaire. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I ramble on a bit and people no, can, uh, can lose their train of thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, I think I think that's about all I had in terms of notes on this movie. I I was uh, delighted from start to finish. Even even the sequences like Louisiana Hayride that I could have done without. Like I'm still like, you know what? They're going for it. They're having fun. Uh, it's a lot of like redneck names that are funny. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the the redneck name roll call. <laughs> there, there was a line long. in there too where they said well, like, oh, we got to go in the Louisiana Hayride. There's no time for a roll call. But like a. F- <laughs> Fully a third of the song is a roll call. Like, I don't know what they're trying to do. We have time. Let's, let's, yeah. I don't know who you're trying to convince. 
Um, how about the costumes? Can we talk about the costumes for a second? Let's please talk about the costumes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, because I feel like on this watch through, that is what I sort of the new thing I noticed. Um, that the costume design is absolutely gorgeous. I love um, the scene where they go and uh, Jeffrey is trying to convince the backers. And um, Nanette Fabre is wearing that pink dress with the sheer coat over it with yeah. the polka dots. It's such a weird garment. And it becomes like sort of a comedy prop because she takes it off and she can't figure out where to put it. And yeah. at the end, it ends up with Oscar Levant carrying around like this huge bowl of chiffon because he doesn't know what to do with it either. But I think <laughs> that was a like, very nice, like understated <laughs> physical bit. Yeah. 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 And in the same scene, Sid Charisse has these little short emerald green gloves on. And those are oh, so yeah. gorgeous. Um, I was mostly fascinated by how very, very high Astaire's pants were. Oh yeah. Like, and I mean, even, even for the time, I know this was the style of the time, but even for the time, like these were super nipple. They were yeah. above the nipple on him. <laughs> and you know, he's, he's a slight man and he looks like he's 90% pants uh, in some <laughs> scenes. Uh, and I'm like, how are you moving this? Well, when you are so much pant, um, and then all the neckerchiefs, you know, which oh, I, yeah. I, uh, I want to see those come back. Those are due know. for I, a comeback. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And the fact that those are his like rehearsal clothes, like when I had to do dance rehearsals, it would be like basketball shorts and like the oldest concert tee I could find because <laughs> I'm going to sweat in this motherfucker. Like, I'm not going to like, I don't need this to look nice when I'm done. Not, and not very man... tall pants and, and an ascot. <laughs> no, no, no. Although next time I'm definitely wearing an ascot, whatever else I'm wearing, I'm wearing an ascot and I'll just pull my basketball shorts up to my neck. Uh, we'll see how well I can do. Uh, yeah, but I, the the costumes I believe got nominated for an Oscar, as did uh, the score and the screenplay. So uh, none of them won. And at the box office, this was not like a big big hit, but it was kind of enough. You know, it's one of those movies. It's like, all right, it made its money back and a little more, and it's well regarded. And uh, you know that we'll we'll take the win. It's not going to like smash box office records, but it, it's it's a win. Uh, and it was enough to convince Astaire to keep making movies. So you know, it's. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah. So uh, how how do you think it's regarded today? Because I've been thinking about this too. It's one of those movies that I used to see on sort of the top movie lists all the time. And I feel like it's sort of fallen off in in terms of um, recognition, maybe. I feel like so. Yeah. I I, I feel like, uh, I mean, just the fact that like I, I'd, I'd heard the name of this movie, but I didn't know what it was or what it was about or what really to expect. I didn't even know until I rented it. I'm like, Oh shit, this is a Fred Astaire musical. Okay. I'm, I'm I didn't know what I was, I didn't know what I was in for. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lack of name recognition. I do think as far as like critical reception, I feel like exactly what I said earlier is that like singing in the rain has kind of muscled this out because they do occupy a very similar space. And while Ebert's list was open-ended, you know, you get a list like the American Film Institute list, you know, and if you're going to have two of these movies, you're probably going to go with Singing in the Rain because mm-hmm. it, it does have, uh, at the end of the day, it has better music. Um, and I think that's going to kind of put it over the top. Um, but they do occupy a very similar space. But that doesn't mean that there isn't room for this and that this doesn't offer its own uh, joys and its own style. Like it's it's different in significant enough ways that I think it is worth seeking out, even if it's not, you know, as critically uh, hailed as it once was. I hope it gets a resurgence. I hope so. I hope more people seek this out and discover it. And uh, yeah, again, I think, I think these old movies need to be made more accessible. I know like HBO max has a Turner classic movies license right now, but they've been pretty stingy about what they're including on that and what they're rolling out. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to what TCM must own. Right. Right, right. I'm not seeing a lot of musicals on uh, HBO Max. <laughs> no. And I think, you know, maybe the, maybe, yeah. And again, maybe we're in that place again where this style of very old fashioned Technicolor MGM musical is seen as kind of corny. And there, there's, there's, there's some corn. There's a, there's an ear of it uh, to this movie. But uh, <laughs> there's a whole hayride full of it. There's, there's, yeah. a, there's a hayride full of corn. Uh, <laughs> 
but it's I I think some corn is good for us once in a while. I think it's good to look back at these and uh, just let ourselves enjoy the moment, enjoy the mood, enjoy the period, enjoy like all the little all enjoy just amazingly talented people putting on a show for us, you know. And that's kind of what it all boils down to at the end. It's just a it's just a damn good show, you know. Yeah. And I was yeah. I was delighted to watch it. Um, I think that's, that's all I've got. Did you have anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think, uh, that covers it. That covers it. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. It's been a delight talking about this with you. Do you have anything you'd like to plug or or promote or anything out there that you'd like people to know about? Um, sure. Um, I do, uh, write on, um, mostly on literature, but also on pop culture and sometimes on movies. Um, you can check out my website at mondomolly.com. Um, and I do have a book I could plug. Yeah, plug (laughs) it. Oh my God. Um, coming early next year, um, an anthology on radical science fiction, totally different from movie musicals called, uh, dangerous visions and new worlds from PM press. Uh, that should be out early 2021. Oh, damn. That sounds amazing. We're gonna have to have you back for some more sci-fi flicks. I just missed you for dark city. We just talked about that. Oh, uh, oh, I would, I'd love that. (laughs) Love your take on some of those. Well, thank you so, so much for being here once again. Uh, you can find our stuff at Rogers List Pod and all the different social medias. That's our email account. That's our Twitter. That's our Instagram. Uh, be sure to join us next week as we talk about a movie that I don't know what it is off the top of my head. So I'm going to keep vamping until I open my list and look at what I am actually talking about. And it's a movie called Raging Bull. Raging Bull. Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. Uh, man, there's going to be a lot to talk about with that one. I'm excited to get into it. So thank you once again for being here, and I'm just going to tap dance my way out of this recording. That was really convincing Foley work right there. Everything that happens in life can happen in a show. You can make them laugh, you can make them cry. Anything, anything can go. pants falling down or the dance that's a dream of romance or the scene where the villain is mean that's entertainment the lights on the lady in tights or the bride with the guy on the side or the ball where she gives him her all that's entertainment the plot can be hot, simply teeming with sex. A gay divorcee who is after her ex. It could be Oedipus Rex. Where a chap kills his father and causes a lot of bother. The clerk who is thrown out of work. By the boss who was thrown for a loss. By the skirt who is doing him dirt. The world is a stage, the stage is a world of entertainment.